Hello from Ellensburg, Washington, USA. This is the Nick Zentner Geology Podcast, Episode 68, Chumstick Formation. Thanks for listening. The last episode, we were talking about sedimentary units on the Olympic Peninsula, including the Blue Mountain unit, if you recall, some marine sands interpreted as turbidites. And we also, in the last episode, talked about the Swak Formation, freshwater sand and clay, uh, black shales, basically, and uh, some Arcosic sandstones in central Washington, Blewett Pass area. And we focused on both of those sedimentary units um, as they pertained to the accretion of a large igneous province called Silesia. And by now, if you've been listening to this uh, series of audio episodes, I think you're pretty sick of the Silesia story, aren't you? Oh my God, is this guy going to talk about anything except Silesia? Well, yes and no. Today, we are getting a little bit younger, talking about another sedimentary series, uh, a sedimentary formation called the Chumstick Formation, commonly confused with the Swak, I must admit, by yours truly and many others. In fact, Eric Cheney, University of Washington, as recently as a few years ago, was saying, hey, look, it's all the same stuff, all the sand. It's part of the same story. Uh, but there has been some exciting new work. Michael Eddy, Erin Donaghy. Erin Donaghy is the star of the show today. She's, she's worthy of that. And Erin uh, has been uh, publishing on the Chumstick, including a brand new 2021 paper on the Chumstick, which again you can find at this Geology 351 website, which I talked about last episode. She's got some new de- details and some new high-precision dates within the Chumstick to break that out as a separate story. And so that is our focus today. But I am going to talk about Silesia again. Come on. Uh, in this 351 class, uh, especially the second half of the class, and you know what I'm doing here. I'm recapping the highlights of uh, the last couple of months in, a, in the classroom that I was teaching. Uh, in the last month of the class, I had a little portable whiteboard, uh, and I started keeping track of all this incredible activity that started in Washington immediately after Silesia accretes. And by doing that, and keeping coming back to it, and I tried not to over overdo it too much, but it's a major story, a story that I really didn't understand the significance of until, I guess, this year and into last year. This business of taking a large igneous province created out in the Pacific Ocean and adding it uh, really uh, dramatically changed um, much of the geology in Washington. For a significant number of years, millions of years after that impact, and so that little whiteboard just had a laundry list of all this uh, bizarre behavior. And since I'm mentioning that now, I wasn't planning on it doing it, but let's let's try it. Um, let me give you a few examples. 
Yeah, let's do that because, you know, uh, many of the things on the whiteboard, I think I've already talked about in this podcast series, and, and I guess a goal of the series is not to repeat myself too much. So at some point, I can't remember when, I'm sure we had an episode on the Straight Creek Fault. Well, guess when the Straight Creek Fault began? 50 million years ago. What happened 50 million years ago? The accretion of Silesia. So the Straight Creek Fault is a north-south trending right lateral strike-slip fault that offsets key bedrock units by about 100 miles. Uh, and again, if you want more on that, go find the previous episode on the Straight Creek Fault. What, el- what else happened about 50 million years ago? Well, that river reversal story, if you recall, technically that was 51 to 49 in the upper swalk. That was the last episode. But, you know, changing uh, many of the major rivers and having them do an about-face, essentially, and stop flowing uh, west and start flowing east uh, because we had this uh, accretion of a terrain to create a temporary mountain range, or at least a series of of high hills uh, at that suture zone between western Washington and eastern Washington. Yep, that made the list. The Leavenworth Fault, which I don't think I want to break out as a separate audio episode here. I'll I'll think I'll toss it in here. But the Leavenworth Fault, the Entiat Fault, the Eagle Creek Fault, there's a number of these strike-slip faults that I'm still learning about, and they are significant within the North Cascades area of north-central Washington, which I will be spending a lot of time thinking about and learning about this summer. So I I probably will have new podcast episodes on these North Cascade bedrock units, um, some new takes on them, some new research on them. Um, But that includes these these major strike-slip faults. They're all right lateral. Uh, Each of the strike-slip faults generally trends northwest-southeast. So the faults themselves are in kind of a diagonal line on a map from the upper left to the lower right, if you want to think of it that way, northwest to southeast, or southeast to northwest, if that's how you identify. But they're all right lateral. And in the case of the Leavenworth Fault, there's 30 kilometers offset. In the case of the Entiat Fault, I'm not exactly sure how many kilometers of offset, but there's tens of kilometers of offset on each of those right lateral strike-slip faults with the block of crust on the southwest side of each fault shifting you know, 20 feet every time we have a big uh, strike-slip earthquake and uh, ultimately get you know 100 or more kilometers of total offset. Those faults aren't active anymore. They all started roughly 50 million years ago. Again, whiteboard, aftermath of the accretion of Silesia. Uh, but depending on which fault we're talking about, they were active only for 5 million years in the case of the Leavenworth Fault, or 10 to 15 million years if we're talking about a few of the others. That's not our topic today, but it is interesting that all of this interesting, rather kind of first-order, major geologic map-type units and faults, they're all kind of happening are uh, kind of starting up, if you want to think of it as like a lawnmower. We're, all, we're going to start that lawnmower. Or each of them is a separate lawnmower. We're going to just get this symphony of lawnmowers starting up in the backyard all at the same time. 
in response of this large igneous province coming in. Okay. Well, the Chumstick Formation is also starting about this time as a direct result of the accretion of Silesia. So I don't want to keep saying that phrase over and over again, accretion of Silesia. So let's try it this way. Pre-50 million years ago, wink, wink, you know what I mean, 50 million years ago, what happened then? The accretion of Silesia. Pre-50 million years ago, there was basically a compressional regime here in the Pacific Northwest. The folds and faults that you can find that are pre-50 million years ago are from crustal squeezing. Let's just be general like that. So there's anticlines and synclines, there's reverse faults, there's thrust faults. We are shortening, crunching, squeezing, compressing, however you want to say it, the crust. But starting 50 million years ago, wink, wink, the crust begins to relax, extend. And it's not a perfect opening of an accordion. As I was just saying, there are these major strike-slip faults. So you're doing, you're doing extension of the crust starting 50 million years ago in the Pacific Northwest at the same time that you're doing this horizontal strike-slip faulting, this sideways wrenching. So in the lingo, that's called uh, transpression. Nope. It was transpression prior to 50 million years ago, but in the aftermath of the accretion of Silesia, we suddenly go from trans transpression to transtension. Boy, why did I stumble on that? This is easy. My bad. I got lazy there mentally, I guess. Stopped concentrating for a second. Let's try it again. Starting 50 million years ago, the chumstick formation started to accumulate, started to form. We started to form the formation called the chumstick in a transtensional basin. Again, instead of opening the crust by you know pulling it apart, that's the most simple version of forming a sedimentary basin. You just kind of stretch the crust and you crack it with normal faults, and then you have this floor kind of drop out, drop down in other words, and you form this little ditch or this little sandbox or this little grave, and then all this river sand is coming in from other places. You know, the river's not going to keep flowing in a particular direction if we've got this sinkhole, essentially. You know what I mean, I think. You know, this five million year old uh, basin that we're just lowering. What, what's a good analogy? I don't know, I'll try. Probably dumb. You're walking in Manhattan. Do they still have these? You're walking down a sidewalk in Manhattan and you're not paying attention. And there's one of those elevators that kind of, there's like a, a man grade that, oh boy. <laughs> I don't even have the right words. I think I've seen it in a movie. I don't know if I've actually walked in Manhattan to give you this example, but what do they call those things? Like there's places in the middle of a sidewalk where it's it's an open space and there's this elevator, you know, used by uh, guys working in the sewer or whatever, you know. So you got to like open this. I'm from the Midwest. It's like a, it's like a, what do they call those? 
storm cellar. We got this big drawbridge type of a thing to open up. Oh boy. Not sure this is working. It's pointless to continue with that analogy because that's not actually what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about one of those big, you know, section of the sidewalk just lowering out of sight. What I was trying to say is that, you know, if you're a river flowing down the sidewalk, of course you're going to go to that hole, that open hole. So if you're a river bringing river sand across central Washington between 49 and 46 million years ago, that's the time of the chumstick, by the way, 49 million years ago to 45-ish. If you're a river bringing sand, you're going to be diverted, aren't you? You're going to go into that freaking hole. You're going to drop all your sand into this, into this basin that, where the floor continues to drop. All right. Well, it is a distinctly different story than the SWAC for a number of reasons, and I'm not sure it's worth going into all those differences between the SWAC formation and the Chumstick. I'll give you one. Again, I know you listen to the audio episode, so you don't have time to watch the videos. I understand. You're a busy person. You've got lots going on in your life. I appreciate you listening to these audio things, but you can do two or three other things at the same time and feel productive. I get it. But occasionally I do feel like I want to refer to a video here and there. So I did post a video with Ralph Hagerud, or Hagerud, I never know how to pronounce his name. He never corrects me, so that's nice of him. But we were up near the Camas Land, it's called, uh, on the north side of Blewett Pass, near Peshaston Creek, south of Kashmir. And there was a beautiful exposure, an outcrop of swak formation, and then across the way we could see, we didn't hike to it, but we could see from a distance the chumstick. And it was, I didn't plan on it, but it, maybe Ralph did. It was, it was a good place to discuss similarities and differences between the swak and the chumstick. At first pass, they're both Arcosic sandstones, and you're like, okay, I guess it's all the same stuff, a la uh, Eric Cheney. But in the video, if you feel like watching it, Ralph is pointing out some interesting differences. First of all, he says, where's all the black shale in the chumstick? I'll give it to you again if you're losing it. The Swak Formation is mostly Arcosic sandstone between 59 and 49 million years ago. That was last episode. Today's episode, Chumstick Formation, picks up where that left off. The Chumstick definitely starts 49.22 million years ago. High precision date from Aaron Donaghy. And the end of the chumstick is, I probably already given you a couple of numbers because it's, it's not super clear on what to, let's just say the, 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 the guts of the chumstick is the Clark Canyon for, uh, member, which goes from 49.22 to 46.5. This one's not memorized. I'm actually looking at one diagram from a live stream. But Ralph says, where's all the black shale in the chumstick? It's not there. Or it's very scarce. That's interesting. And then you go, well, wait a minute. I know about central Washington. Are you talking about the Roslyn Formation? Because that's got a bunch of coal beds in it, isn't it? That's a bunch of shale. Well, according to Aaron, the Roslyn is still a bit of a question mark. The Roslyn Formation. 
is not necessarily, probably not equivalent to the chumstick. So I'm not lumping the Roslin formation into this episode, and I'm not lumping the Roslin into the last episode either, this walk, or certainly the Blue Mountain stuff. So there's, there's some timing things to work out. Here's an aside. So it feels like, it feels like, I could be wrong here. If I say it feels like something, that means I'm probably generalizing too much and I'm way off, but it feels like. For the last 50, 60 years, we've had the same few folks kind of working in central Washington looking at these units and approaching it with the same tools. Nothing wrong with it. It's just like, okay, we've got topographic maps, we've got some rock cameras, we've got uh, some sampling techniques, we've got uh, point counts of the cobbles, aerial photos maybe, map it, make, make a geologic map. Oh, I'm gonna, um, you know, I'm gonna supervise a master's level student. Oh, we'll we'll send them to the SWAC. They'll work out a little project. It all feels kind of the same. I mean, there's steps forward in in understanding, but it doesn't feel like a huge leap forward from my point of view. But in the last five years, Michael Eddy, you know, I was gonna say that, didn't you? Michael Eddy's come in on his white horse, and, you know, he, he, he's read all the previous work. It's not like he just ignores it. He, he, he's very good about that. Literature review, read everything. But he comes in with a brand new set of techniques, a brand new set of eyes, and I know I said it in class. I'm not sure I've said it here. Michael Eddy is a renaissance man. He's doing lots of different kinds of geology and is pretty much on top of his game with multiple subgenres within the geological world. Now, that's a rare find. He's comfortable talking about plutonic rocks, volcanic rocks, sedimentary rocks, structural stuff, chemistry, geochemistry high-precision uranium-lead dates from zircons, stats. This guy's the real deal, and he's like probably 32 years old. He's a superstar already. Now, you know I'm biased because he asked me to be part of his grant, and of course I'm all excited about that, blah, blah, blah. But I, I think I would say that even if I never got a call from him. Pretty sure I would. In fact, I was saying that. <laughs> come to think of it. So what I'm trying to get to here is that Mike Eddy's student Aaron Donaghy is continuing to work with the chumstick, our topic today. I mentioned this briefly last time. And equivalent or potentially equivalent sedimentary units in the Seattle area, something called the Puget Group, some other sedimentary units uh, in the Port Angeles area, not the Blue Mountain unit, but some other stuff. So there's, there's work to be done on these sandstones, let's just call them sandstones, sandstones at selected places just in the state of Washington that really have not been correlated before. And with Eddie's techniques and Aaron's uh, hard work, 
I say that because I, I mentioned this last time. She's on Instagram almost every day, and she's posting Instagram stories from the lab or from her you know, uh, home computer as she's drafting up maps. And it's really fun to follow because I, I comment occasionally, but I just usually just kind of passively follow because it's the stuff I've been teaching. And I'm like, oh, you know, she'll like have a photo of uh, some sample uh, that she has in this geochronology lab in, in Purdue back in Indiana. And I'm like, you know, pausing the screen, you know. It's like, what does that say? What, what you, oh, I've never heard of that unit. Oh, cool. I wonder where that is. Sometimes I'll even like go to Google Maps and try to figure out where she collected the sample. There's a new game. There are some new personalities and it does feel that there's a significant leap forward that's happening already, but probably coming a lot more in the next 10 years with many of these units in central frickin' Washington. It's pretty cool. And for me, it's energizing. I'm pushing 60. I don't want to teach the same stuff over and over again. And... No problem for me, because I never learned it to begin with. <laughs> it's like, oh, come on. You've been teaching Pacific Northwest geology since 1995. I'm sure you've talked about the chumstick forever. It's only an hour away. Well, full disclosure, probably never mentioned the word chumstick until two years ago. <laughs> I'm not embarrassed to say that. I mean, my attention's been all elsewhere. I guess... I don't know, should I say it? I guess, because it felt like the same same three or four geologists publishing on this stuff. I don't know. All right, so back to the chumstick and the details that we can get from it. Um, I, I don't want to do two more things here with the chumstick. So you've got a feeling for date. You've got a feeling that it's different than the swalk. Uh, it doesn't have black shales. In outcrop, the, the chumstick is typically lighter in color, light tans and even whites. Um, there are some beautiful spires made out of chumstick that are viewable in that Camas lands area. By, by comparison, the swak formation is kind of a darker, what did Ralph say in the video? Browns and reds and greens, I think he, he said, or something like that. Okay, so we know that the Chumstick is a separate story, but who cares? What, this is another separate river story? Well, that's where it gets very interesting to me. And I kind of was going with that whiteboard 20 minutes ago or 15 minutes ago. Let me go back to it. So if suddenly the accretion of Celestia means that we change the um, stress field in the Pacific Northwest, if you're willing to play along with that, that we have transtension, and we're dropping the floor out of certain sections uh, of the basement rock, and we're starting to trap or accumulate incredible amounts of sand at these ungodly fast, is that ungodly? At incredibly fast sedimentation rates uh, in the Clark Canyon member of the Chumstick, Aaron in places has sand accumulating a sedimentation rate of six millimeters per year, seven millimeters per year. And you're like, I don't know what to do with that. And I'm with you. That was one of my biggest embarrassing moments during the class as I'm live streaming. I'm like, I can't even picture what that means. 
Isn't like one sand grain like a few millimeters across? How can you have six millimeters per year or one millimeter per year? Anyway, let's not go there. The point is, Aaron helped me with that in real time in the class. The floor is really dropping out. These are crazy fast sedimentation rates in the chumstick formation. Oh, the cat's being fed. Automatic cat finger. No, no cat feeder. What? Automatic cat food feeder. No big deal. Humble brag. Yeah, I'm down in the basement with the cat. Deal with it. And you're like, well, how can she come up with that kind of precision for the rate at which these rivers are bringing sand from uplifted blocks to the northeast? And the answer is, through Mike Eddy's literature research and maybe connections with former geologists who worked in the area, it was discovered, not by Mike, but previous workers, that there were one, two, three, four, five, six, seven separate major tuff layers, volcanic tuff layers, ash that fell out of the sky from a distant volcano, unclear the source. In some cases, the tuff layer is an ash flow tuff. It actually flowed into place like a pyroclastic flow. Pretty cool. Again, don't know which volcano erupted, but there are set. what did I say, seven, two, four, six, Two, four, six, seven. Seven major tough units between 49 and 46 million years ago. And those tufts are essentially instantaneous and excellent time markers. So therefore you can segment the Clark Canyon member within the Chumstick Formation. In other words, you have packages of arcosic sand uh, deposited between these tough events. If you know the dates for the tough markers, then you can do some math to figure out, you know, how much of this sand came in per year or per thousand years. Uh, and it's it's a way to document. Uh, I think one of the main messages from Aaron's new paper is that for the first time, you have a coherent story between the Leavenworth Fault and the Eniat Fault in this transtensional basin, and you can tell a story of accumulating the Chumstick Formation in less than five million years and you have all the sedimentation and the high-precision dates within the sedimentation uh, story uh, to put the story together uh, in a complete form, beginning, middle, and end. And I think where she's going, at least one of her new papers, is going to be trying to use that kind of set of techniques with the chumstick and going to other transtensional basins worldwide geologically and try to document that kind of a beginning, middle, and an end story to some of those other events. Okay, are we in the weeds? I guess we are. What are some major stories from the Chumstick, therefore? And where can I find the Chumstick, by the way? If you know central Washington, where can I find the Chumstick? Well, I'll describe it really quickly if, I, if possible. You're driving north from Ellensburg, U.S. 97, up and over Blewett Pass. You're weaving your way down. Now you're stuck behind a truck. You're in a narrow slot canyon. You're going over the old Blewett Gold area, 
And are you ever going to get out from behind this truck? I mean, you're crawling now. And then finally, you get to the floor of that uh, uh, windy section, and it opens up. And the uh, Ingalls Creek is, is flowing in. You're driving north, right? It's flowing in from your right. And the Rock House uh, is a new place to stop and have a coffee. Um, and basically, as soon as it opens up and it flattens out and you can finally pass that truck heading north towards Leavenworth, you've crossed the Leavenworth Fault. And if you cross the Leavenworth Fault, then suddenly you're in the Chumstick. So you left the Ingalls Ophiolite, the o- Ingalls Exotic Terrain, with all those green, gnarly serpentinite rocks. That's why it was uh, a narrow canyon. It was very tough rock in there. And then the, the terrain opens up the landscape opens up because we're into softer chumstick formation. Where else can you find the chumstick formation? We shot another video at a, a Geology 351 field trip to the Leavenworth Ski Hill, suggested by Erin Donaghy, where she measured a couple strat columns. Cashmere. Uh, selected places near Wenatchee. Peshastin, Dryden, pretty much that whole drive between Leavenworth, Washington and Wenatchee, Washington, you're driving right down the guts of the Chumstick Basin, the Chumstick Formation, and so therefore that stretch of the Wenatchee River is flowing through that. So if you can think of those inclined beds, hey, Peshastin Pinnacle State Park, have you heard of it? Those are inclined sedimentary beds within the Chumstick. That's what we're talking about today. I will finish with the last major discovery, and a a discovery that took me a while to figure out, but then I finally got it, found a way to teach it, and um, I'm quite fond of it. There is a conglomerate unit within the Chumstick called the Tumwater Mountain member. And I'm pretty sure, but not entirely sure, that in older reports... The geologists thought that the Tumwater Mountain member, these huge conglomerates with these big watermelon-sized cobbles, they assumed that it was at the base of the Chumstick. But instead, because of these tufts that are that you can follow beautifully through the folded Chumstick, and you can follow those tough layers as they intersect or no as they as they merge into this tumwater conglomerate and then if you're at the tumwater mountain conglomerate member you're close to the leavenworth fault you can even keep track of time with where you are in this stack of watermelons i'm saying watermelons because they're river cobbles but they're even bigger than river cobbles it's quite an impressive collection i'm talking about the tumwater mountain member within the Clark Canyon, <laughs> within the Chumstick Formation. Rough way to end. What's the point of tacking this on? Well, there was an ingenious way to document right lateral offset on the Leavenworth Fault, which makes a boundary between the Chumstick Formation to the north and the Swak Formation to the south. To the south of what? The Leavenworth Fault, which strikes northwest-southeast. Anybody still with me? (laughs) As the cat eats a delightful 4 p.m. meal.
It turns out those watermelons are Mount Stewart granodiorite. And the cobbles and bigger boulders in the Tumwater Mountain member geomorphically form these fanglomerates. Have you heard that term before? You know what an alluvial fan is. An alluvial fan is a, a broad apron of sediment that was deposited by a stream coming down a very narrow canyon. Oh, we have sound effects now. Come on. Second episode in a row, we got the cat with us here. All right. So the idea, and this is the part that took me a long time to figure out and to visualize, and it's almost impossible to do it audio form, but we'll try, is that once upon a time there was a stream flowing from the Mount Stewart granite, Batholith, away from the Mount Stewart granite Batholith, but carrying boulders and cobbles of Mount Stewart granite Batholith down this narrow slot canyon and then crossing the Leavenworth Fault and then broadening out and dropping a beautiful apron, an alluvial fan of Mount Stewart rocks. Let's just put it that way. You know that they're rounded cobbles and bigger. Cross the fault the Leavenworth Fault. But here's where we go. Let's have a big earthquake. Let's have another big earthquake. Let's move the Mount Stewart side of the Leavenworth Fault 20 feet to the northwest every time we have a big earthquake. And let's do, I don't know, let's do 20 of these earthquakes. Now we've moved that south side of the fault. What? Can't do my math. Distracted by the cat. But the point is, we keep moving Mount Stewart to the northwest on the southwest side of the Leavenworth Fault, and therefore we keep moving the slot canyon that's bringing the Mount Stewart rocks to the Leavenworth Fault and dropping them over on the other side. Anybody still with me? And so we have a whole series of fanglomerates that are strung out side by side instead of all in one place, because we're moving the shotgun. We're moving the caulking gun. That's the prop that I ended up using in the classroom. Instead of pulling on the trigger for a caulking gun and you get this continual kind of of caulk, I was imagining it being a katami gun, just sending these watermelons made out of Mount Stewart granite out the caulking gun. But the point is, if we keep moving the caulking gun to the northwest between 49 and 46 million years ago, we can create many different alluvial fans strung out along the southwestern margin of the Chumstick Basin, and each fanglomerate is going to get a little bit younger. And we know those fanglomerates are getting younger because of the tufts that are striking into those fanglomerates from the interior of the Chumstick Basin. Now there, I did it. I'm confident that I have successfully lost even the most sharp listener. Like you're an A-plus 
Geology Podcast listener, you're with me at every turn. I know even for you, I left you in the dust. Feels good. You know I'm kidding. Actually, don't you hate when people say that? It's like, you look really ugly today. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. It's like, I'll decide. I can tell if you're kidding or not. You don't have to, you have to label, you know. Well, there's Jason. He's late again. <laughs> that, that, was a, that was a moment of uh, jocularity that I presented out there to the group. Now, here's a little pro tip. How about you say something funny and we can know that it's funny and we don't have to label it as funny. Okay, buddy? Oh, this is... This is funny. This is, this is, this is hilarious. Well, was I successful in getting us off of that probably ineffective way to finish the academic exercise? In conclusion, we've been talking about the chumstick formation, which is broken into a couple of key members the Clark Canyon member, with seven tough units separating sections of Arcosic sand, the sand being brought to the Chumstick Basin between 49 and 46 million years ago, as blocks of crust are mysteriously rising the geologic elevator to the northwest and northeast, that's a whole nother story, mostly to the northeast, in the North Cascades. But then we finished with an attempt a good old college try to explore the significance of the Tumwater member, fanglomerates, deposited from 49 to 46, but not all at the same time because we keep moving the source of those Mount Stewart granite boulders and cobbles within that fanglomerate unit. The whole thing shuts down 46.5 million years ago, and the Leavenworth Fault does not make any more earthquakes. So it was a significant earthquake generator for less than 5 million years here in central Washington, and yet we can see, even to this day, a significant change as we go from one side of the fault to the next. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Nick Zentner Geology Podcast, dear listener. I genuinely appreciate you tuning in. Hope that you learned a couple of things. Thank you. I love you. And goodbye.